VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right. And good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Tuesday, May the 31st. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Paddy Daly, and David Williams. He's the producer. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air, 273-5211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. So I guess another late night coming up for hockey fans as the conference finals kick off tonight with Colorado, the Avalanche, hopefully Young Newhook in the lineup, versus the Edmonton Oilers and the super stud Connor McDavid. I guess he's not the only stud on that particular team. But here we go, and fingers crossed for Alex here tonight. Also, sticking with the small screen, it was today in 1990 that the pilot episode of Seinfeld was first broadcast on NBC. So had a nine-year run, 180 episodes, of course, made a major impact on the comedic and societal scene. People still use some of the catchphrases that came from Seinfeld in day-to-day conversation, I think. Okay. All right, also a curious one. So we know this is National Tourism Week. And there are lots of things around this province that we take for granted. You know, some of the touristy types of things that may be not the biggest deal to us as the residents, the the natives, is the whales and the puffins and the icebergs and the like. But there's also some other, maybe like even the Basilica of St. John the Baptist. Those types of things are what the tourists come to see. So it was today in history in 1859 that Big Ben, the world's largest four-faced chiming clock, first started ticking. 1859. And speaking of Tourism Week... I hear this morning there is not going to be any more bumper cars at Splash and Pot. I mean, how many great times did we have out of Splash and Pot in the old bumper cars? And I still think they have the bumper boats, but they've got a new virtual attraction, a virtual reality uh, attraction that they're going to install for this upcoming season. But no more bumper cars at Splash and Pot. And speaking of travel, I think there's going to be more and more pressure brought to bear on the federal government to hire some more border service agents. Have you seen or heard any of the stories coming from some of the major airports, notably in Toronto at Pearson? It might not have a big impact here in this province, but many people, including me, plan on doing a little bit of travel this summer for the first time in a long time, and the pent-up demand is very real, and hopefully many people are considering coming here. So working with the Canadian Air Transport Security Authority, CATSA, and the Canadian Board Services Agency, they're talking about what's absolutely leading to all of these delays at the major airports. Now, the government tells us that we're just about at capacity of 400 new screening officers at CATSA for Toronto's Pearson. Okay. There was every single uh, person that went through Pearson a couple of days ago experienced that minimal one-hour delay. And so these are extraordinary. Some passengers are are experiencing three-hour delays, much of that being held on the aircraft. So they point to the random COVID testing and the duplication of health questions upon arrival. Now, public health will tell you that it's still important to identify any potential variants of concern with the ongoing testing. But boy, oh boy, the issues inside some of these major airports looks absolutely horrendous. Here's some of the stats. Uh, Last week, 6,000 travelers had to wait more than an hour on planes before heading into the airport. More than half arriving of all arriving international passengers, 112,000 people experienced some form of delay last week. Now, when the government says we kind of forgot how to travel, that's not our fault. It's on the feds and the two separate authorities to figure it out. And at the same time, many people will try to get a Nexus Pass. So you get to go to your own different lineup it's a little bit more expedient or it's supposed to be and now with some of the issues that we're seeing there's some 300,000 Canadians that are waiting for their application 
to be reviewed to maybe get themselves a Nexus Pass. Now, it hasn't worked as well as it should have and has, as it has in the past, but you do indeed get some benefits for being a Nexus card holder. So, unfortunately, the American agency reopened their Nexus Enrollment Center back in April on the 19th. In Canada, those offices have been closed since March of 2020 and still yet to be reopened. So if you're waiting for your Nexus approval and your interview to get the final green light, you might be waiting for a while. You want to talk about travel or the tourism sector and or what's happening in this province? Let's get at it today. Now, the one story that I think gets a lot of attention, especially in town, and of course we can talk about issues wherever they are, in every nook and cranny on the island and up in Labrador. But when we had the spate of shootings and stabbing and firebombings, the RNC seemed to be moving pretty quickly here. There's now been four total arrests, some pretty serious charges being laid, and this is the squabble or the spat or the territorial racket over uh, a group in Paradise and a group in St. John's, these criminal networks. So four arrests have been placed. Look for more to come. Importantly, the RNC are refuting a claim that there was a three-and-a-half-hour wait for the RNC to respond when shootings were reported. They'd say they've done a comprehensive deep dive into 911 and cannot find said two, uh, uh, two, what time was it? 2.45 in the morning that the fellow says he called. They says it didn't happen. And they say they responded in a timely fashion. But these issues are, of course, big ones. And add to it, they confiscated 120 illegal firearms and three printing machines, leading us to what will be obviously a very controversial piece of newly tabled legislation federally regarding gun control. So they stopped short of a full ban on handguns, but it is now going to be illegal. A national freeze on the purchase, sale, importation, and transfer of handguns in Canada. The federal government is also planning a buyback program for thousands of what we refer to as assault-style weapons, including the AR-15, even though I think there's an awful lot of focus on the look of the weapon versus the capacity of the weapon. There's a couple of things in this legislation that absolutely do make sense, though. They're going to take away your firearm license for those involved with domestic violence, criminal harassment, increasing criminal penalties for smuggling and trafficking of firearms, and a red flag law that if you are deemed to be a red, f- the red flag is up, a threat to yourselves or others, you have to turn over your firearm to law enforcement. That stuff just makes sense. There are going to be some exemptions granted for those who are elite sports shooters, and you'll be able to be authorized to carry, such as valuable goods carriers. I'd imagine that means like Brinks trucks, employees, and what have you. This is going to be certainly a hotly contested piece of legislation. It's also going to increase the maximum penalty for offenses under the law, including illegally owning, acquiring, or manufacturing a firearm from 10 years imprisonment to 14. All right. So uh, the unfortunate reality is when we talk about guns and gun control and what works and what doesn't, I think people are absolutely right to point to the fact that if we have a handgun and violence problem, inside the world of the of gangland, then most of those guns, so say the chiefs of police, come across the American border. So we can do all we want inside our own borders and to deal with uh, Canadians based on legislation and confiscation and buybacks, but until we wrap our minds around keeping more and more guns out of the country, then we might be just swimming upstream. That said, the Stats Canada report says only 6% of handgun violence took place amongst the gangs. So where does the conversation pragmatically, realistically begin? So if the thought is, well, if you confiscate handguns or any type of firearm from law-abiding citizens, then all you have are the gangs and the criminals with guns because they don't care what the law says. 
there's some truth to that, but are we also pretending all of a sudden in Canada that it's good guy with the gun stuff? And, you know, law-abiding citizens with their guns being carried around, if encountered by a gang, a gun-toting gang, will see shoot-up, shoot-em-ups in the street? That really hasn't been the case. And then the whole concept, again, this, some of this is the American psyche that bleeds into our conversations about fighting back against a tyrannical government. Boy, that's a weird argument to make because it kind of feels like we're talking about killing elected officials. Like, is that what people mean when they say those types of things? So whether or not you hate, loathe, love, applaud this legislation or the prime minister, let's see if we can have a realistic conversation about guns and gun control. Well, we've seen just in the very recent past here in this city where it's been a problem. So again, all of the controls and the, the banned weapon list with some 1,500 plus firearms or weapons or guns, long guns, assault style weapons, that's already just one part of the conversation. It really is incumbent on the federal government, if they intend on doing anything about public safety and keeping more and more guns out of the hands who are, of people who are willing to harm themselves or others at the border. And these red flag laws make all the sense in the world. But this is going to be hotly contested, to say the very least. And the unfortunate part of it is the debate surrounding guns and gun control has kind of lost its way. You know, we have really emotional outbursts surrounding gun control legislation, and I'm happy to take it on from any angle. And I do think that pragmatic gun control makes every bit of sense. But unless we keep the guns out of the hands of the criminal, and they have jacked up the maximum penalty for illegally acquiring or using a handgun. So anyway, you want to tackle it, we can do exactly that. And the buyback program, okay. Moving back to more provincially centered matters. So when the government floated $41.5 million from the Federal Oil and Gas and Industry Recovery Fund to Husky Energy, and just a few days later, they were bought up by Synovus or joined, joined forces with Synovus, I guess is what they would like to say at, at Husky. So with that $41.5 million, the intention was to keep some 331 jobs at the idle project. Okay, the project was suspended back in March of 2020. Now, Synovus Energy says they're moving ahead with the West White Rose Extension oil project, $3.2 billion worth of expansion. For industry watchers, those employed in the industry, those who are out working on this project at Argentia, this would be most welcome news. But here, therein lies the contradiction, whether it be federally or provincially. The want to double oil production by 2030, and at the exact same time trying to curb emissions by whatever percent people would like to choose uh, by the exact same date. You wonder where the focus lies, but for oil industry watchers, that's, I think, very much welcome news for them this morning. The price of Brent crude this morning trading at $123.78. Okay, let's keep going. And this, of course, will drive people who are crab harvesters, the inshore. 40% of the crab quota remains in the water. And before long, we'll be at the malt of the soft shell, and there will be hell to be paid. So the harvesters have been subject to trip limits and various imposed fishing schedules over the last number of weeks. The, uh, the processors say they'll be limiting their production. The decision will be left up to the individual plants. But with only 40% of, uh, pardon me, only 60% of the quota being taken out of the water, if the remainder stays in the water at 622 per pound, that works out to about $275 million of crab that won't be landed. So at the beginning of the season when there was an argument about the price per pound, and then there was an adjustment downward based on the Association of Seafood Producers, what they say the market can bear, you know, if some of these harvesters were ready, willing, crewed up, 
can wait to get out in the water, take the entirety of their individual quota, and now 40% of it remains in the water. I don't know about that, man. It's one of the most curious industries, though, isn't it? The raw material, the price per pound, the lack of competition. And yes, there may indeed be what they call a hangover from the higher prices of 2021, but some of the lower price crab is flooding the market. And now we have our harvesters sitting, twiddling their thumbs, wondering if and when they'll be able to get the crab before it's too late. Hmm, how about that? All right. So yesterday was, uh, let's talk about anything inside the, uh, the world of kindergarten through grade 12 and the new pilot project for pre-K as part of the roadmap to $10 per day for early childhood education and all of the different moving parts therein. But yesterday, it's, it's curious, there was really a quite a furious email sent overnight regarding the fact that it was indeed Provincial Francophony Day yesterday. The pushback is always very similar, you know, is we need to have more substitute teachers available. We need more full-time teachers. We have to talk about class size. We have to talk about class composition, the importance of education to the community and our overall health. Absolutely, 100%. And we try to put education on the front burner here a lot. In a bilingual country, I don't know why the pushback would be as extreme as it is. Now, we need to do better to attract French immersion teachers if the program is going to be successful. But the documented benefits to the individual and their brain if they learn a second language or more than two languages is clear. Improved memory, problem solving, critical thinking skills, enhanced concentration, the ability to multitask, better listening skills. There's a huge benefit to learning a second language. There just is. The uh, research into that area is very complete and well understood. So I know there's lots of issues with attracting healthcare workers of all disciplines. There's going to be all kinds of concerns inside the, wor the world of K-12 and even post-secondary. So if you want to tackle those, we can do it. And you know me. I bring up what I think might spur some conversation, but it's virtually impossible to tackle it all. So whether it be the quote-unquote debate regarding cost-living mitigation measures that's been brought forward by the provincial government that was entertained in the House of Assembly yesterday, whether it be things like the diversion of emergency care services in Central and the backlog now created at Grand Falls Windsor's Hospital, all of these things are up for conversation if you are so inclined. Let's check the Twitter. How are we doing on the phone, Dave? <laughs> We're on Twitter, we're VOCM Open Line. You can follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. Let's get a tune on the go. It was today in 1980 that the Pretenders groundbreaking album, Pretenders, hit the charts at number 10. But my favorite tune by the Pretenders hit the charts in 1984. It's a little bit of middle of the road. When we come back, you know the deal. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's start on the top of the board, line number one. Tracy, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. I'm calling to you now, voicing my concern about the child care issues in the province sure and uh and also how bad the employment system is um my daughter-in-law lived uh, and my son they live in uh, the Cranville area and uh, they had a th uh, three-year-old and a nine-year-old so they've been um her mom has been helping out with the child care but uh it, it's gotten too much for her so she had to go out and look for childcare. So she's gone out and looked and she's checked with the, there's only one licensed daycare in the area and there's a complete waiting list there. And as you know, the $10 a day daycare and the $15 a daycare was only for daycare, for registered daycares. So then uh, going forward, she went to the, day homes in the area and they don't take any kids under the age of five 
So she's still stuck there. Went out and put, went out for um, babysitters and uh, had to apply and really not appropriate or substance abuse and stuff involved. So fast forward, she had to quit her job. Now, it was a good job that she loved, and my son is an EMR, so he's an emergency responder. His hours were all over the place, and she also works in that sector as well. And um, so she had to leave her job, and she had she left her job on April 28th, applied for EI, and on the 29th day, she called, and they hadn't even opened her file. So she had to get Chance Rogers involved to have a look in and see what happened and if she's going to get her EI. So she got replied back today, and she got denied her EI. Um, I have two issues here with this. First of all, um, the $10 day daycare, how does that help those people that are um, minimum, um, probably minimum wage, some are just... Um, Low, uh, medium wages. How does that help those people? It doesn't really. So the look, there's a lot to what you just said there. Regarding the want for an in-home uh, set up to take a younger child, there's not a whole lot the government can do on that front to force someone to take a certain age child, but even for the older children, who all of a sudden, the subsidy for an older child doesn't match what it is for a younger child in some of the regulated centers, so I'm told, then all of a sudden, the parents of the older children don't have a spot anymore. So there are so many different things that have to be dealt with at the exact same time whenever this pathway to $10 a day is satisfied. So whether it be ensuring that uh, regulated and unregulated are treated very, very similar, if not exactly the same, the focus on training for early childhood educators and the rate of pay for this critically important job, and access. So it's one thing for someone living in the Northeast Avalon to be able to shop around, get an ac- get access to childcare, even though it's not that easy. Lots of people on wait lists around here. But, you know, I know the EI circumstance because if you quit your job for whatever reason, you won't qualify for employment insurance, but it should never come to that. You know, I don't have children who are in need of daycare. My boys are in their 20s, so I don't have any skin in this game, but I know full well we've got to figure it out. There's an economic and societal uptick to all of these issues regarding accessible, affordable, well-trained child care providers. So now she's applied for jobs because she can work from her home, but I can't understand what I'm going to penalize her for. She can't. She can't help it. Yeah. No, I totally understand. Right. It, it's cruel. It's uh, uh, the, the, the province is in problem. Like I don't see an area in the province that's not in trouble. I don't. The healthcare is gone, and now the education system is not the best. And this childcare thing. I don't know how. I don't know the answer. But I certainly know that there needs to be a lot more research. And there needs to be a lot more help out there for these people. And it's sad when people are now the, the, the my son, he's going to probably have done his work two weeks straight in order to keep going for his family because they can't go back with the child. They can't, she can't go back to work if she got no daycare. <laughs> I don't understand the government system. Well, you know, some of it's based on government policy and some of it's simply based on access. So in some smaller parts of the province where you have some at-home, unregulated, unregistered daycares, 
we can't treat them differently than others. You know, put people on a level playing field, of course, makes sense. There are some issues regarding liabilities, what have you. We have to address them all because you can't have people forced to leave the workforce because, one, they can't afford childcare or they uh, can't find a spot for their child. So those two things are exactly why affordable, accessible childcare and early childhood education, it works for everybody. It'll work for me. I don't have children that need care, but I know full well with everything you can read about what the outcomes have been for people back in the workforce and going up, moving up the chain, earning more money, paying more taxes, the increase in GDP. It all makes sense. So I know folks out there say, if you can't afford to have children, don't have them. But if we step back and just look at how it's worked in other places, it just makes every bit of sense possible to make those two issues uh, real, realistic for Newfoundlanders and Labradorians, access and affordability. Uh, I appreciate the time. Would you like to say anything else this morning? No, thank you for your time. I appreciate yours. Good luck. Okay, bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Yeah, okay, let's keep going. Let's go to line number two. Tom, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Um, you know, as I listen to everybody, my heart my heart just goes out to everybody. And it's, you know, I, I reflect upon it being like a boiling frog. It's, it's like whether it's our health or it's the environment or it's our financial state, whether it's personal or, or government. It's, it's like we, don't, we can't look back and see um, where we've come from and the choices we've made. And then looking forward, we really can't see what's coming at us. But yet we know that these things are – the world has changed. And, you know, if you throw – the analogy is if you throw a frog into boiling water, he'll, he'll hop out. But if you slowly heat it up, then he'll stay in there and get cooked alive. And I feel like everybody's just getting cooked alive, and, and I, I don't know what it's going to take for us all to make the necessary and difficult – changes that it's going to take to be able to well some of those uh, decisions are very difficult because it's impossible to know what the future holds so if we're talking about my own family's habits and spending and income and projected income we can make decisions that will last in the long term regardless of pandemics and restrictions and all these types of issues but i think we've got Every single person's circumstance, everyone who listened to the program this morning has their own circumstance. So it's hard to dictate how people spend their own hard-earned money. But if you factor in what we know to be true regarding household debt and the Bank of Canada set to jack up the, rate, the benchmark interest rate another half point this week, very likely, you know, the amount of credit card debt we hold and lines of credit that we hold and the lack of preparation for our retirement. That is much unlike my, my parents and your parents, just a different circumstance for working in the same job for so many years and having a pension you can rely on. Look, there's just, it's hard to know even where to start. I think we can all look inside our own bank books and see where we are and where we need to be. But I just don't know what to say when the, the, uh, the future is just so uncertain. You know, it, it is. You know, however, you know, responsible adults need to stop ignoring reality that just keeps banging us in the face, you know, and, and, and I know it's difficult and I know nobody, you know, everybody just wants to enjoy their life and, and get on an airplane and do whatever everybody wants to do, order, order that thing online or, or all the different things we do or just survive, you know, just put a little bit more oil in their tank. It's just, it's just my heart goes out to people and I, and I, I just know it's only going to get worse, and I just call on people to make difficult choices, consult with people who you know maybe have some experience or some wisdom to offer you, and, and you know, it's just it's just it's difficult. It's it's so difficult, and I just see it slowly unfolding and quickly unfolding depending on where you are. It's just, it just breaks my heart, and I just, I don't know. God knows I see a lot of it. Uh, anyway, Tom, in the subject line, it says HMP. What would you like to just talk about regarding the prison? Well, Minister Hogan came out and, and said... Uh, 
there last week that plans are underway and they're working with stakeholders about what the facility should look like and and they intend to incorporate recreation and education and and they're also in the new design health and mental health facilities which which is all very important and and 100% supportive um but I, I just keep reflecting on this this whole payday loan scheme where you know the government could go out and borrow money at say 3% or they're going to um allow a business, a group of businesses, a consortium, to finance it at a much, much higher rate. The oil companies use between 85 and 10% as their cost of capital in this environment now without competition, which, which I don't know if people have been following, but in December we realized that uh, two bid, there were three bidders for the HMP, and now that's uh, two of the bidders backed out, so we have sole source bid, and it's, which technically doesn't mean a bid. And in the in April 2019, when Minister Parsons announced that they were going to go ahead with this as a public-private partnership, which is what PPP stands for, it was $200 million. Now they're saying that the most they're going to spend is $300 million. And when you really kind of wrap your head around, we now have a we have a blank check project uh, with an unknown cost of capital, and the government is. Is pushing forward with it, and if and if you just look at the difference in interest, so it's over 30 years that we would be paying this back, and of course then there's also a maintenance component to this, which which would be unknown, um, like to us obviously, and, and that'd be all part of the the contract that would be signed. But the difference between 10 or 11 or 12 percent and 3 percent is massive, like massive. It's 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 you know it's a difference between the project costing us if we were to finance it. At three percent, maybe five hundred and seventy million dollars. So that's just because even though it might start as three hundred million, it just multiplies over time. Two at ten percent, costing us one point two billion dollars. And when Premier Ball defended the the public-private partnership, Ernst and Young had done a a value for money analysis and said it would save us eleven point nine percent, which is thirty-five million seven hundred thousand dollars um, over time. You know, I just I can't wrap my head around how we just, pro, you know, go forward. Other than the fact that because it's not something the government has to borrow today, so it's not something that they have to put on their their budget or their financial statement. I just, it, you know, it just blows me away. It really does. Yeah, the, the the distinct need to replace the dungeon is clear, but some of the other issues that you point to are unclear <laughs> and you know when we go down that path of unclear it's uh sometimes leads to some terrible decision making i know there's proponents out there uh for the p3s and whether it be pay me now or pay me later and the what has been disastrous p3s that have happened in other places many of those are to do with roads and tolls and the like as opposed to some other pieces of infrastructure but fair ball on hmp uh, anything else quick time before i take a break well, I just want to just bang away a little bit more on the on, on the HMP. The Bank of Canada said that 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 the P3s should be for large and capital intensive projects, which this would be, have an identifiable revenue stream, which this does not. So when you get into something like the Confederation Bridge, which is a P3, um, there's a revenue stream. They charge what it costs to go across, and it and they also manage a company manages that. So not a not the public. I mean, I mean, every, all the costs that go along with the hospital or with this HMP will be still attached to this. The same unions will work at it and everything else. Um, it, sh- it should also be 
target places where the private sector extra expertise exists so and to permit a competitive proce process well we don't have a competitive process so i just i just want to call on the on the government to, you know yes let's replace it but let's go borrow the money which is what we're doing at our cost of that we can borrow it at, and let's manage the project, and, and everyone's listening. Stay safe. Take care. Appreciate it, Tom. All Take the best. Care. All right, bye-bye. Right, let's take a break. When we come back, Nick wants to talk about uh, royalties for the government coming from the oil industry. Then there's some talk about gun regulation and mental health. Lots of issues, and then they're up to you. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back. All right, let's go to line number one. Nick, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Not too bad, I suppose. Uh, just got a quick one here for you. Sure. Uh, seeing our governments want to be very transparent, as you say, when they uh, ran for election, uh, what's the royalties are getting these days uh, since the oil's been booming here uh, in Canada, the price of oil? Uh, last I heard, when, they, when the oil was booming, they were getting billions in revenue for royalties. But, uh, you know... Seeing how they're getting so much money, maybe some of that money could be used to reduce uh, the amount of tax that people are paying in uh, at the gas pumps. They, they can make up some kind of uh, reform or whatever. I mean, this is getting a bit ridiculous. Um, the price of gas and just everything else. Just to give you an example, I was in Ontario just for that last weekend, and about a bottle of wine. We'll flash at that, which is a high premium wine to some. And uh, down here is twenty-one fifty a bottle. Up there, it's fourteen bucks a bottle. So you know, when you look at stuff like that, that's telling you how much markup is going on stuff. And it's not just markup. Taxation is the big difference maker, I yeah. think. Well, that's uh, what so, I'm referring to. what does that have to do with oil royalties? I'm sorry. No, I'm just uh, just giving an example. Like what, with the oil royalties, uh, is there any type of relief that they can give us at the, at the pumps? We've taken some money from the royalties and given it back to taxpayers at some way or another. Even the seniors with home heating oil. I don't even think you need to do yeah. that. I mean, it, it, where the money comes from is kind of neither here nor there for me necessarily because it's all a pot of money inside the government coffers. So we don't have a money problem. We have a distribution problem as far as I can tell. And the government does tell us what they bring in regarding uh, annual oil royalties. It's in the estimates. It's in the budget. It, it's no problem to find the number. In years past, we may have been in an excess of a billion dollars, but there's lots of different things regarding how much we make on royalties. It's not just the percentage that we get and, of course, the 5% equity take a West White Rose extension, what have you, 10% out of Tebron. It also has a lot to do with the amount of oil being produced and the exchange rate. So it's a moving target every single year based on the fact that there's three different factors here. So, well, I guess four yeah. different factors. But, I mean, this government, uh, you know, just the way everything's ran and everything's going, I mean, we need some relief, like everybody do. It's not just uh, rich, poor, middle class. Everybody needs it. This is just getting out of hand. And uh, something, something's got to give. And right now, the ones that are really paying the most is going from middle class right down to the poor. And it's I don't know if they're waiting for people to break to the point where people just can't afford to buy food or gas or go to work. But I know... Uh, like you know, young kids that are uh, 19 and 20 that are trying to go to work. My daughter's one of them, and the amount of money they're paying gas to go to work—it's almost not even worthwhile to go to work. The amount of money they're making, you know. So, yeah, some relief at the pumps and uh, some more transparency, uh, you know, needs to be given uh, from this government. I know that uh, you know you see Dave Brazel and all them talking about different uh, investigations in the House. I mean, you know, that's another one. 
right? I mean, it's got to stop with this government. This government needs to start to uh, open up the hand and give them back to the taxpayers that put them in where they're due. Yeah, so. I mean, some of the reports I'd like to have a look at, of course, I like the information period, whether it be Rothschild, and I know there's some HR issues regarding the report regarding whatever ha- is happening at Elections NL, so they're all a little bit different, but I'd like to have a look at whatever I can get my hands on, to be honest with you. But uh, let me put this out to you, Nick. There's an overlap in the people who want more, demand more, whether it be relief at the pumps or home heat subsidies or whatever, you know, just a bit of break, less taxes, whatever the case may be, at the exact same time, pounding on the government for the amount of debt and deficit that we carry. So it's kind of difficult to have both things at once. Now, if we look at individual spends, because that's where I think we can glean more information about what the priorities are for government. Someone can rightfully say, what are we doing getting or putting any money in the hands of Labatt's brewery uh, to deal with their own inefficiencies inside their own operation? That's a fair criticism. You know, there are specific That's spots of money thing. for infrastructure and uh, inefficiencies and uh, emissions reductions and all those types of things. But, you know, the oil royalty number, it's easily found. Like, they don't shield that. That's a piece of mathematics that they can't shield. And it, it, I could find it in a couple of minutes if I had the time as opposed to doing live radio. But people want more, but then we don't want to spend more to service our debt. But we need some relief, but we hammer the government for borrowing too much. It's just a, the sweet spot. I have no idea where it is. Well, when the government's out giving out money to, like, Snovis and companies like that, I mean, in the millions back during the pandemic, just to, you know, make sure they make this project uh, go ahead and stuff like that, and that wasn't even no guarantee then. And come by chance, another 5% going to the taxpayers. Take it out of the coffers. Never mind making the taxpayers pay for it. I mean, uh, come by chance, I mean, that's just ridiculous. Like, putting another 5 cents on every liter at the pump. And then you got, uh, you know, this Rothschild uh, report. I mean, they're not telling nobody about all these uh, committee things they make uh, with the what is, um, the word I'm looking for. I can't remember it here. But anyways, uh, doing all these reports, I mean, there's nothing coming out about it, uh, about selling assets off and stuff like that. Yeah, we, we need and, that information, uh, like we already said about the Rothschild report. But, you know, know, someone will make an argument that the $41.5 million went, and that wasn't provincial money, that was federal money, the Federal Oil and Gas Industry Recovery Fund. The argument can be made that that allowed for this project to be restarted. So uh, it's not an argument I'm making because I think the monies from that fund should have gone to individuals, not corporations, personally. Well, from what I read, Sonovus is trying to get out of that project. and uh, They just green-lit it. Uh, Suncor is actually taking the bigger stake in it. And um, other than that, uh, like, but I don't know. Sonovus and all their partners just green-lit it this morning. Yeah, I understand that. Well, like I said, Snovis is taking a lower part of it all. They're actually trying to step away from it, and uh, Suncor is actually taking a bigger step into it. I don't but care who owns it. I don't care either, but I'm just saying, uh, Labatt's jury down there, that's, that's just uh, appalling what they gave them. I mean, money to change over. Let's do what China did. Make their companies change over. Like back uh, their years, a few years ago, China told all their uh, steel-producing companies that they got to use a higher-grade iron ore to make their steel. And never mind uh, going with low, low-grade low ore because of emissions and stuff. And these companies had to adapt. They weren't given no money. Yep. And that's Plus. like in here in Newfoundland. We want that. Adapt. And guess what? Lavats is making more than enough money off bottles of beer that, than you can shake a stick at. Uh, they don't need $500,000 or $250,000, whatever they got. I mean, they don't need that money. That was just a drop in the bucket. We actually want the I mean, You actually want the government to tell a private sector company how they... Yes. Produce energy, really? I'd rather, yes, I'd rather tell them. Like you get, you meet up to the standards. 
they did. They do it to everybody else. You got a standard when you build a house. You got a standard when you uh, get an inspection on a car. Well, hey, let's do a standard on. Uh, we can still uh, pick whether you run your company. Yeah, but well, come on. Energy we really want like the government. Emissions. We really want governments to dictate th- those types of things. Just like that argument we made, where we're going to tell the Irvings where they have to buy the oil. My God, I mean, we've got all these rally cries of communism and stuff, and people well, are all of a sudden supporting it. It's, it's the strangest thing to me. Well, like, well you bring up the Irvings. I mean, when you're talking about uh, a regime down there that's uh, doing assassinations and stuff, I mean, we're doing we're buying oil off them. Uh, we're not buying know, anything. The Irvings are buying. It. No, no, sorry, let me rephrase that, Patty. Irvings buying oil off them. There should be should be a, just like they did to Russia, a sanction put in place that oil can't be bought from comp- uh, countries like that. Okay. I mean, it's just getting down. You got regimes down there. I mean, you that that guy down there. Um, I forget the guy's name. He was a reporter. They assassinated him. Khashoggi. Donner. Yeah. And so, I mean, we should have in place a sanction that you cannot buy no oil from Saudi Arabia. Buy it from Canada. We got we got more than enough oil here. Okay. I mean, I, look, I, I, I get the argument, but I, I just find it confusing <laughs> when the free market capitalists are all of a sudden telling people uh, you have to buy a royal from X, Y, or Z. You have to do this or that to uh, he, to, to build your home or to uh, operate your business. Like, I just find that, di- you know, and the diff- the issue you made between the bats and my home. Just hold on, Nick. The difference between yeah. my home. So if I get to still get to pick whether or not I want to heat with oil or heat with electricity or, or hydro. So they're not dictating that kind of stuff. You're talking about building codes stuff as opposed to well Labatt here here it is we're shutting you down unless you make the transition on your own dime we'll give you 12 months it's uh, I don't know the first thing is 12 months but I'm saying that you give them a five or ten year uh, outlook saying that within this time you do got a transition that's all you got to do it's not a hard thing to do I mean that sort of stuff is currently in place it's been done in other, other countries and stuff and it works I mean, you know, like solar solar panels and stuff. I mean, that stuff is working. It, like these companies ain't just doing it overnight. Nobody can. I mean, it's, it's, that, that part don't make sense, Patty. But what I'm saying is that if they're going to transition, stop giving out all the money. They're giving money away for like basically anything, like anything that's big business. The money's going out the door. It don't make sense. All right. I appreciate the time, though, Nick. Yeah. You have a good one. You too, man. Bye bye. Um, Okay, let's keep going. Line number two, John, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. I'm going to change the subject altogether. Sure. Patty, I was looking at the news last night, and uh, it's CEO of uh, Central Hills. She was talking about all the improvements they're going to make. Uh, is she the one who is living in New Brunswick? I'm not sure. There is someone at an inner leadership position at one of the health authorities that isn't here. Yeah, that's true. Now, there's something else I'd like to know, too. Who signed this deal with this company, ESS, so that they could promote their people into leadership jobs, management, and whatever? What contract is that? There was a guy on there a while ago, Patty. And he was on at least once a week for a long time. And he was talking about the same thing. Oh, okay. <laughs> now I think you, I know what you mean. Yeah. You, know, you know who I'm talking about yeah, now. His name is Mike. Mike, yeah. And uh, nobody, nobody ever answered the question of who signed that deal. There had to be, there had to be somebody who signed it. 
And is this a case of, I wonder, of how much are you going to put in my campaign? Because that seems to be a big thing now. Well, I mean, they have to report campaign donations by law, and they do. We, I, I think we have a distinct problem with campaign finance and uh, dearly need reform in this province, a bit of the wild, wild west. I mean, the, even the federal government does a better job of it than we do in Newfoundland and Labrador, so there's a problem there. And even if it's not real, the optics are bad, right? They just simply are. You know, we can, we can accept donations from outside the province. That should never be allowed. Never. And, you know, well, we, so anyway, there's lots of that. Well... I'd still like to know who signed that contract with this ESS company. Let me see if I can find out. Because Mike uh, was after you for a long, long time. Oh, I did lots of follow-up on Mike's behalf, and he'll tell you the same thing. Yeah. Well, now you're going to have to do something for me. <laughs> no sweat, John. I'll give him my best shot. Well, Cuddy, uh, you say you're going to do something you do it i got no problem pull, trying to pull that off no sweat and i still i still think that you should run for politics nah not for yeah, me yes yes i can see you now you'd be on the opposition side and you'd be down everybody's throat yeah i, I don't know i don't see it in the cards at this stage of my life to be honest with you john but i appreciate the call and what i think might be a compliment even though maybe being a politician is the most complimentary profession or vocation these days well when somebody asks you to do something you do a lot more than some of the politicians we give it a shot here, John. There's only so many hours in the day, but we do what we can, where we can, for sure. Uh, they're flagging me off to the break, John, but you take good care of yourself. Stay in touch. Teddy, you got 26-hour days. Sometimes. Feels like it. <laughs> okay. okay. Thanks very much, Teddy. You're welcome. All the best, John. All right. Bye-bye. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's try line three. The uh, Lindy, you're on the air. Morning, Patty. Hiya. Not too late. Good. Is this, first, is this the first day, April? No. Or is this the last of May? It's the 31st of May. <laughs> because I was listening to CJLN there this morning, and uh, uh, they were saying that uh, they took eight cents, whatever, off the gas tax. Correct? Well, it's once it passes through the House of Assembly, yes. Yes. And the next thing I heard was. There's 11 cents going on the uh, uh, carbon tax. Uh, that's not accurate. The carbon tax... That's what you said this morning on CJON, sir. Well, I can tell you what it is if you care to hear it. Yeah, I certainly do. Okay. So the additional carbon tax will be 2.2 cents, I think, is the specific number. The reference to 11 is now with an additional 2.2 cents. It up moves up towards 11 in total on carbon tax, as opposed to an additional 11 cents tomorrow. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. So somebody needs to get their facts straight. Well, I can I can tell you that that's the case, what I just said. And if we need to rewrite a news story, then I, I'm sure the newsroom is listening. But, yeah, that's the case. An additional 2.2 cents. And this was always understood and always known. Uh, as soon as the, the bilateral agreement between the province and the federal government was put in place, these dates for increases and the amount to be increased is all set in stone. Now, curiously, when the province was asked to decrease the provincial portion of the gas tax, there was some issue regarding the 
the uh, agreement we have with the feds regarding a backstop. And we had to get assurances from the federal government that they wouldn't impose whatever the backstop is if there was a cut of tax on fuel. I guess that agreement was arrived at, and the province, whether people think it's an off or not or whatever, uh, 50% temporary reduction on provincial portion of the gas tax, provincial portion of the tax on diesel, and that's only until the 1st of January. So there's lots of concerns there. And when the 50% number is used, and I got an email on this yesterday saying, when I do the math, it's not 50% because it adds up to more than about 25%. But it's only a reduction in the provincial portion of tax. Not the federal excise tax, which has been in place at 10 cents since 1995. Not the HST and not the carbon tax. It's just the provincial tax. Yes, because you don't hear one word from Mr. Trudeau. Um, With regards to the federal part of it. But that that carbon tax doesn't go to the federal government. That goes right to the province. So oh, okay, yes, yeah. yes, 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 yes. So okay. there's not much that the prime minister that's has what to we say. To. Yeah, that's what we agreed to. It's like we don't, we're not on the federal setup or scheme where rebates are part of it. All of the money collected in carbon tax here in this province goes directly to the provincial government's coffers. Yes. Now, they say they will earmark it for, you know, alternative forms of energy projects and that kind of stuff. It would be nice to have a clear breakdown as to exactly how they're using that money because we know the creation of the gas tax originally was to put money in the pot to deal with road work and bridges and the like. And we bring in way more in gas tax than we ever spend annually on road work or bridge work. You got that right. <laughs> they're doing the, uh, the Lewin Parkway here again uh, this year. They're doing it now, eh? Okay. You know why? Because what they put down the last time, which was less than two years ago, I'm almost sure, was tissue paper <laughs> on the side of a hill. It wasn't. It wasn't any more than I'd say at least no more. No more than two inches thick. And you could watch it. You could watch it over the winter going. That's a different they conversation they altogether. Don't lay, they don't lay asphalt. You lived in, in uh, Alberta. Yep. In uh, whatever, in Calgary. And you know, you see streets paved there. Yeah, they I never lived in Calgary, but I did live in Alberta for a long time, yep. Yeah. When they put down the base, the base asphalt was eight inches thick. I know, I was there too. Yeah, I don't know there, the specifics. They, put down, they, put the, the, they, they do the, the asphalt uh, recoding, whatever. By God, by is not enough to keep. You know, I don't know why the Audi figures is going to stand up. I don't understand it. Well, some of the problem is when we sometimes when we resurface the road, we simply mill down the pavement and then pave on top of it. No additional prep done on the bed itself. Then there's the chemical composition of the asphalt, which is highly questionable, because the province and everyone will make the excuses that well, freeze and thaw. Yeah, well, Canada, right? There's freeze and thaw in other parts of the country. The roads aren't quite the way they are here. I'll never forget, and I use this one all the time. I was in a budget locking at Confederation building one time, and the. Uh, the finance minister of the day, which happened to be Kathy Bennett, said we're getting more kilometers done for less money spent, which unfortunately is probably the wrong idea. So if we get, you know, you get what you pay for, right? So if we put down blacktop that doesn't last, then we end up having to do it more and more often, and we go through that cycle of potholes until it becomes unbearable, and then we go ahead and resurface or repave in full. So, you know, we've got big questions to be asked. There's a civil engineer at Memorial University who says, we're about 50 years behind the, uh, the times here with how we approach road work. So it's a, probably a better idea for me if we spend more, bed prep better done, thicker 
uh, asphalt with different chemical composition and the road lasts longer. That's in all our best interest. Even if we get less kilometers done per year, I think after the 10-year uh, examination, we're ahead of the game. So I just don't really understand how we do it here. And if anyone wants to do the comparison, look at the quality of the road on either side of Terra Nova National Park. The federal government has a much different approach to the tender package because it's not the paving company's fault. They're replying to a tender and they will do exactly what's inside that tender. And if it works, it works. If it doesn't, that's not their fault. They did what they were asked to do by contract. Anyway, give you the last word, Lindy, before I go, oops, go to the news. Why can't they lay asphalt on top of asphalt? Why have they got to cut it down? You're not, you're not putting any more asphalt there. You're well, only taking out asphalt and putting in new asphalt. But then you inherit the soft spots of the already busted up asphalt as opposed to milling it down to where it's hopefully a bit more solid, hopefully a bit more secure, versus paving right over what is already beat up because you'll never realistically fill in potholes and ruts the way you think you might with asphalt. So you just inherit all the soft spots that were there and probably it looks better because it's thicker, but it doesn't last any longer. So anyway. Okay, I I have I have a daughter out in out in uh, Calgary. Very quickly, go ahead. Who who, who worked at uh, at uh, testing whatever for when when they when they tear up uh, the asphalt okay. whatever and the, and the gravel underneath it. That gravel going back in that hole had to be tested, and if it never came up the specs, it had to be taken out again and and. And the right, the right, okay. put in, and the same way with the concrete or asphalt, whatever that had to be tested. If it never met specs, it didn't go there. Makes sense. But you to don't me. see that around here. Uh, well, I don't know. Whatever, what come, whatever <coughs> comes on the paving plant, that's what goes there. And 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 okay. three quarters of the time, that's base asphalt. It's not topping. I worked on asphalt. I have not. Well, I have. <laughs> I, I like the smell of it, though. Years. I know I'm in the minority. i got to get to the news, Lindy. Okay, sir. Okay, man. All, All the best. All the best. Bye-bye. All right, let's go take a break. When we come back, tons of time to speak with you. Of course there is. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number one, say good morning to the co-owner of the Anchor Inn Hotel and the Hodge Premises Inn on Twilligate. That's Deborah Borden. Good morning, Deborah. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? I'm doing very well. Happy Tourism Week to you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We're so happy that we can celebrate. How are the bookings looking? Strong, strong. Definitely coming back strong. We're so excited uh, for the season ahead. I think many of us thought maybe we wouldn't get here, but we have, and uh, it's looking really good. Uh, Deborah, you know, like we spoke with Todd Perrin yesterday, and his operations are in St. John's. So the proximity to the international airport. How different is it for you and other rural tourism operators to market your product? Because when you're closer to the airports and the concierge at the hotel will direct you to one restaurant or another, or Signal Hill or Cape Spear or down to Chafe's Landing, how different is it for you to market what you have? Well, we've always marketed Twillingate as a destination. We never market uh, our actual product, per se, until people are on the ground, because what you need to do is get them to decide to make that trip. You know, five hours outside of St. John's, Twillingate is at the end of the line of this destination. But we've been very, very successful. Twillingate is constantly in the top three uh, destinations in 
Newfoundland and Labrador and, you know, constantly in the top two of uh, rural destinations. So seemingly we're doing something correct. Of course, our icons being the icebergs, the whales, and then the gorgeous, you know, shoreline and coastline landscape, uh, you know, people are naturally drawn to it. So I, I think I think it works well for us because we're that option. What does iceberg season look like? Because in years past, passing the 49th parallel, I think is what they used, or 49th latitude, is that we saw some years 350 icebergs, then last year a couple, and this year there was one or two. So what is it looking like for the ice world? So, you know, we're not sure what the rest of the season is going to bring, but so far we've been lucky that we've had a couple very close to shore, very large, that have kept people coming. Uh, you know, I sometimes say we don't need to have lots and lots. We just need to have a few or even one or two, uh, as this season is proving, uh, to capture people's attention. And uh, and that's definitely happening, uh, I do think. And that's just a personal thing that climate change is affecting the ice that we see. I'm sure many will agree with that. But uh, so far uh, this year, it's been a blessing just to have those couple around. Yeah, I mean, the icebergs are meeting warmer water quicker than before. Consequently, we don't see the massive bergs like we would historically in the past. I know Barry Rogers operates a, a nice tour out of uh, out of Twil- Twilling Gate, like he does here in St. John's. And there was a video the other day of a massive iceberg falling apart, and you could hear the voices of the folks on board. They've never seen it. We take these these things for granted. But an iceberg is an international tourism draw. Add into it the puffins and the whales. We've got something that we sometimes don't know how great it is, but in fact, it's world class kind of stuff. Okay, let's talk about government. Government has made significant investment in tourism. With the ads and they've worked famously and you know taken out a page in the come from away playbill in the united states or new york city those things work where and i'm not talking about massive monies because we have a lot of private sector investment that is required where does government need to do more or do better job in crafting the message because right now we just sort of lean on the summer you know the ads just look like summer so what more should we be doing or change the message to make it an even bigger thing because we can't rest on our laurels 490,000 tourists is great but it should be in the millions no i think the tourism industry and, and those of us who are tourism operators on the ground we agree with that we have fabulous shoulder season our fall is extraordinary i sometimes think that twin gate in the fall is the most stunning beautiful place and uh we're not doing enough to sell that i don't think twin gate uh, and some other rural destinations sort of make the grade as actual winter destinations we have other places in the province that do a great job of that but even as a place just to come to get away, I think people are around the world are looking for those very off-the-beaten-path, unique destinations where they can just come to rejuvenate and, and sort of find themselves. And I, th- I think we need to focus a little bit more on that, that there's a lot more than just July, August, or June, July, and August, that we have a lot more happening. Uh, spring, so, you know, our hiking is world-class and hikers hike year-round they don't you know they don't worry about the temperatures they don't worry about the weather as long as they have the proper clothing they're willing to go out on the trails you know night and day so I think there's definitely product that we can be selling uh, in the shoulder season that we haven't spent enough time focusing on. Because that not only leads to uh, attracting visitors, it also makes it seem much more precarious for staff. So if I look at the hospitality industry and think, well, I'm going to get four months of work a year, then what? When there's careers to be had in hospitality, when I worked in the hotel business out in Alberta, I loved it. Every day was different. I'll beat the same business, but different people. So it was really exciting and fresh. And yes, there's year-round opportunities. How do you think that impacts your ability and others to get staff? 
Oh, it definitely has an impact, Patty. I mean, uh, you know, getting staff in rural Newfoundland is still challenging for us. Uh, we operate generally pre-COVID times from like 1st of April to the end of October. So we have a slightly longer season than many operators in rural Newfoundland. But even so, you're still only guaranteeing, you know, a certain amount of work. And you really would like to lengthen out your season for as much as you can because the people who are working with you are generally living in our communities and the more work we can provide them with the better it is for them the better it is for our community the better it is for everyone's quality of life so i think you know that is something that we constantly in the industry now over the last number of years talk about how can we you know add a week at the beginning add a week at the end do that again next year every time you can lengthen the season and patty i've been here since 2011 and i've seen actually the season lengthen by several weeks so i know it's happening it, it's slow it's like that glacier pace but it is happening it's moving out every single year and we just have to keep pushing pushing harder on that and you know there's it's once again a difference between say the city of st john's and other parts of the province because we can see some visitor tourism action based on conferences and the like because we have the infrastructure for so it becomes a different strategy that you'd incorporate versus other parts of the province it's been years since i've been to twillingate and it is a remarkably beautiful part of the province for those who may indeed still consider staycation regardless of the price of fuels and all the other uh, components uh, make a pitch for twillingate Oh, well, you know, number one, you'll never be disappointed. The the gift that the last two years gave us was all of this in-province travel. And people just got here and said, I cannot believe I've never been before. And they enjoyed it and loved it so much. And I tell you what, based on my own personal experiences, it's well worth the drive, regardless of where you're coming from, especially on the island, to make your way to Twillingate. Uh, I wish you nothing but a bang-up season. Deborah, great to have you on the show. And once again, happy National Tourism Week to you. Thanks, Patty, so much. Take good care. All right, bye-bye. It's Deborah Borden, co-owner of the Anchor Inn Hotel and the Hodge Premises down in Twillingate. All right, let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Morning, Bill. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. Uh, I'd like to talk to you about last week's thing on TV about uh, Levette's Brewery uh, receiving um, uh, federal and provincial funding for up to Mm $500,000. It was cost shared of $250,000 each. Uh, My gripe with it, or rent, I guess, is, uh, you know, Levette's Brewery, for one thing, has been around for many, many years, probably 100 years or more. Um, They're very profitable. And yes, our government can come up with funding to that amount of money for them. But on the other cheek, when you listen to Siobhan Cody lately, we have no money and we don't have this and we don't have that. And every other uh, politician is basically uh, sounding the same thing. And to add insult to injury, of course, our gasoline prices are through the roof, as we all know. And then they come out with a, a slap in the face for the oil people that are burning home oil of $500 one-shot deal sort of thing. But yet again, they can give these big corporate greedy companies this kind of money and, and promote it as being, oh, it's a wonderful, environmentally friendly, green thing that they're doing. Well, I'm the type of person that should... Uh, or not should say, I say let them build their own chimney and let them uh, uh, do it on their own instead of coming back to the uh, the taxpayer. 
Yeah, this is a federally established pot of money that's a cost share hope. And so it's 250, 250, and plus Labatt has to match it with its own $500,000. And they're replacing a diesel boiler with two new propane boilers. Uh, so I guess it's high pressure steam for the plant there on Leslie Street. So they will go on and talk about greenhouse gas emissions. They say it will reduce it by 520 or something tons annually. But look, no argument for me is highly profitable companies, these moves, they can take them on their own. But when the federal government creates a pot of money for these transitions and these retrofits or refits, then of course companies who have the deeper pockets are going to take full advantage of it. I mean, it's not that long ago, Loblaws was given millions upon millions of dollars to replace some coolers. Like, I mean, I understand the concept behind this stuff, but when profitability, corporate speaking, is at a 70-year high, maybe we can let their profits do the talking. Yeah, absolutely, and that's the reason why I'm calling. And, uh, you know, it's a sin that these uh, corporate companies, the greed never stops. And we're, as taxpayers, and in this particular case, uh, most people are fueling Flabette's Brewery and Molson's and those guys. But, uh, you know, when is enough is enough? Because, uh, you know, a dozen beer right now, it's hitting like uh, 30 bucks a dozen. I would say after Labette puts that half million dollars in, it'll be probably $32 a dozen to uh, make up for that 500000 that they have to spend. So again, it'll be probably back on our shoulders. But anyway, I want to finish it off this way, that uh, non-alcoholic beer that smells good, tastes good, looks good, and it's only seven ninety nine a case at most supermarkets. <laughs> <laughs> whereas, whereas the same kind of beer, non-alcoholic beer promoted by Labette's, $22 a dozen, Patty. So I just thought I'd throw that out there for people who might want to have a barbecue this evening and try some non-alcoholic beer. Yeah, fair enough. I don't know how much the prices have been uh, increased by individual uh, breweries or distilleries, when in fact it really feels like the increase in any prices in the recent past has all been taxation. So I don't know if there's going to be a slip in an increase for Labatt products to cover their 500 grand. I don't know. I guess we'll all find out in the future. But it really has felt like it's been... Uh, uh, tax increases that have impacted whatever we buy at the liquor store or the liquor express or the corner store or where have you but i appreciate the time this morning bill i think you're probably offered a very popular comment this morning that you know big business well they can carry their own weight and carry their own investments absolutely sir appreciate the time you're welcome. Bye-bye now. Take care. Bye-bye. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Ernest, you're on the air. Hello, Patty. How are you doing? Doing okay, thanks. How about you? Uh, pretty good, pretty good. Um, just wanted to talk about the minimum wage. And because um, I've seen like some articles there where 15 and, and fairness are talking about, you know, how this is not enough um, due to, you know, changes in the cost of living. So that's very true. But if we raise the wage to what they are hoping to have, you know, a 19 or $20 an hour wage, it's not going to do anything either. It's actually going to be more harmful than, than helpful at all, to be honest. And I, I oh, speak so. as a person who... Well, for one thing, it's that when you raise the minimum wage mandatorily, you know, through the government, the prices all go up to accommodate that. So what we actually need to do, Patty, instead of just arbitrarily increasing the wage, which puts pressure not just on us as consumers, 
but also on the businesses. You know, that's when that wage goes up, that's probably a le- a, one less job that somebody might be able to create. It hasn't been the case, though. There's been, you know, that's always been the pushback, right? Is if you increase the minimum wage, especially in these smaller operations, jobs will be lost. Including in this minimum wage hike plan, there's a transition of 50 cents a dollar for companies with uh, 20 employees or fewer. If you look at what happened in Ontario and the doom and gloom forecast of the push towards $15, which is where they are today, 66,000 jobs will be lost. Didn't happen. Then there's Nobel Prize research done on minimum wages impact on job creation, job loss, the local CPI, local net GDP growth, it hasn't been the devastating downside that people pretend it is. So we can only look at real-life examples, and Ontario, I think, is a good one, because what we were told would happen just didn't. Well, for one thing, Patty, um, we're not Ontario. You know, the circumstances here are different. Uh, Logistics are different. And when the cost goes up, it's not just for the business uh, in terms of having to pay extra wages, Patty. That increase is dealt all across the board. And that's the same thing as we see with, with inflation in general. So, I mean, price of uh, products goes up, ingredients for food and restaurants. I have friends who are restaurant owners just starting out, and they're nervous about this because they can't afford to give their staff more hours with this because even though they're going to get this um, this kind of help, this lots of just at 50 cents, yeah. that's not really going to be enough because you see the other costs that are associated with their business have increased. So what we're not, we're not like, it looks good. It's great optics for a government. Oh, we've got $15 an hour, $20 an hour minimum wage. Everything is, is, is great. We're, we're caring about the workers. But we're not really addressing any of the actual problems here. It, it's really not because I'm a minimum wage worker, and every time my wage goes up, I'm I feel better off than where I was at the start. You know, I'm just. So, what are the root cause issues that you're talking about? Or whatever. The, I'm sorry, I can't remember exactly how you couched it. So, we're not dealing with it in the appropriate fashion for more money in people's pocket, as opposed to do yeah. what? Well, what we could be doing, Patty, is looking at increasing the wage through competitive measures and like the problem with newfoundland and labrador is that we are not a competitive province you know we don't have a a very free market you know it's generally very monopolized and um, big business focused kind of structure and that's that's a huge problem so i mean like um let's just say cannabis for example cannabis was legalized we could have had the opportunity to create lots of well-paying jobs that wouldn't have had to have them that would have been above minimum wage if the government had been a little bit more liberal with the licensing but we didn't do that we just said okay we're going to give it to these big businesses here and they're going to handle it and they're going to pay their workers minimum wage which is generally what they did really but but the big places that got it have unionized workforces yeah so. so that's not what happened at all we could have created a lot more jobs, though, Patty. Certainly not higher-paying jobs. I mean, that's the argument about... How do you know? How do you, do you, you, you really, but listen, Patty, just because you're in a unionized environment doesn't mean you're automatically going to get better pay. That's not always how it works. When the Loblaw licenses, for instance, when the, the biggest companies got those licenses, their workforce was already legalized. They were making more money than anyone was ever going to make in a mom-and-pop bone shop. I mean, that's the argument about divesting or, pardon me, privatizing or selling off the NLC assets. I think it, by and large, boils back to remuneration. 
and the competitive nature of the marketplace is a bit more of a business size issue versus a individual size matter because that can very easily become a race to the bottom as opposed to you know all ships float when we all have more money so the cannabis uh, the cannabis example the big corporations that got those licenses they had unionized workforce that are making a fairly good sum of money right not well but listen though patty like i'm saying though you had more competition you had people making more money too because as people make more money they're able to pass it on to their employees it's so i mean just because the unions get it because the or the um, loblaws gets it what do they what do they keep that money within the community as much no not really they send it off yeah but we're talking about wages not where profits go yeah, we are exactly, but that's the thing. But that's it's all part of it, Patty. It it really is. And the thing is, is that the minimum, raising the wage does not arbitrarily does not really improve people's quality of living. It it just doesn't. It it hasn't, and that's why. Like I mean, a lot of these kind of anti-poverty advocates and people who are talking about you know how the minimum wage raising the wage is, is a solution. It's not. Well, what's the solution then? I mean. More free market economics, Patty. Lower taxes, different incentives, reforming the welfare system, for example. That's a really big one. That could actually help get more people out of poverty. Taxation. I mean, the amount of money paid uh, by minimum wage workers, taxation really isn't it. I mean, I mean, the progressive tax system really doesn't mean I, that minimum wage workers reducing their taxes does. I mean, there's not a lot of taxes being paid, so not really sure where that goes. Reducing sales tax, Patty. That's that's what I'm saying. Reducing the sales tax. That's that's one way. That's more money in people's pockets. That's the important thing here, you know. In or even like I said, reforming the, the social assistance program because that is a big problem here too. You know, people can people on welfare who want to get out and work, they can only work a limited amount of hours, and then they're, they're there's penalties for that. So it doesn't really benefit them. So they're stuck in this kind of poverty cycle. Well, I mean, some of that is choice, though, isn't it? Because, I mean, like, for instance, one of my sons, he started at uh, minimum wage at a notable fast food restaurant and stuck with it, and now he's making way more. He's a salaried employee. So sometimes it's, you know, entry-level jobs don't necessarily, by definition, mean livable wage. There is a way to grow in the company. There's a way to earn more money, earn more responsibility, get promoted. So sometimes we allow manufactured hurdles to drive public policy conversation because, you know, if we say, well, there's too many hurdles for someone who's on uh, social assistance to go to work, well, not really. They just make their own decisions based on what they think is best for them, best for their pocketbook, what might be an easier path. So people can go to work. I mean, there's jobs out there. That's one thing I hear all the time. Well, there's no jobs. There absolutely is. I went on Hebron Way to Canadian Tire over the weekend to pick up one thing. Not a staffer in the building that I could find, and yet there's a big sign out front, part-time, full-time jobs, flexible hours available inside. There's jobs out there if people want to take them. Now, I know there might not be the most attractive jobs of all time, but we all started somewhere, right? No, exactly. No, and you're, you are right to an extent. <laughs> but at the same time, Patty, you have to look at this, is that if it's not attractive enough for people to get off the system and go to work, that's a problem as well. You know, if you're and, and listen, we're not even forgetting, we're not even talking about how attractive it is to collect social assistance and work within the informal economy, which is a big problem in Newfoundland, a lot bigger than people realize. Yeah, of course, but and, that's hard uh, to legislate through wages. But you're kind of making my argument if the wage isn't attractive enough, but at the same breath, you're saying don't raise the wage. Really, actually, tell you the truth, because if, like I said, 
people want to work okay there is people who want to work patty they can do that but like i said if they're on social assistance they can only work a certain amount so that money that they're going to be making even if it was say higher than minimum wage is not going to be enough it's still going to keep them stuck on the system there isn't a really a, a transitional path out of that it's 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 just not there and that's a ref- that's a reform that's needed if and you work full-time for 15 dollars an hour you make more than you do on social assistance well, that could be debatable sometimes. Well, no, that's just math. Uh, we know what the social assistance payments are. If you work full-time at 15 bucks, you make more than you would on social assistance. It's absolutely just the case. This is not a philosophical argument. This is just a mathematical reality. Right? And the, well, doesn't, well... Okay, I'll say this then, Patty. Okay. You know what? I'm not, I'm not perfect at this. I'm certainly not. You know, I'll tell you what... No, that's quite true. Um, <laughs> the, the, the thing is, is, is that, you know, if you want a good example of um, minimum wage leading to um, like job losses, look at Seattle. The jobs weren't lost in mass, but the number of the hours worked did fall, if I remember the study correctly. There, there are there are lots of examples. Uh, the city of New York, great example. And the, all of these so-called doom and gloom just didn't come to pass. One of the reasons why is that as opposed to someone who earns much more money and is a bit more mobile and will maybe buy some luxury type items and maybe will be want and has the capacity to travel, generally speaking, lower income workers don't have that ability and consequently the money they spend is spent where they live so some of the money that is now in their pocket might help them service some debt but it will also be spent exactly where they live as opposed to say some of dave williams money <laughs> sorry dave or or my money like i'm going to travel in june we saved up for during the pandemic and we had a travel voucher so i'm going that money is going to be spent elsewhere for someone who's making 14 dollars an hour 16 dollars an hour 17 dollars an hour they're much more likely to spend within 100 clouds where they live so the economics of how this money impacts the general economy is i think real life case studies new york city i don't know about seattle i'd have to look it up to be honest with the earnest i'm not really sure i think ontario is the most recent one where we saw there was jobs added not lost added so there's I, I think minimum wage for me is a really tricky conversation anyway because if it's one thing if i have a workforce of five myself my wife run an operation or i'm making minimum wage working for a national brand or a multinational company they have the wherewithal to pay more we know it to be true their profits are through the roof versus the tricky piece of business if you're a smaller uh, smaller margin type of operation and the the economy has suffered for some uh, some factors some industries some retail sectors fast food and the restaurant business and the like they have an argument to be made about how quick they can recover but minimum wage is not created the same depending on the company you work for and what you're doing so anyway would you like to add anything else while we have you yes yes well uh, kind of talking about that there i mean it makes it like it's quite understandable that minimum wage uh, benefits the larger corporations much more than it does the kind of mom and pop businesses because they can afford to bear the costs but I mean, so that, and that's that's a problem here. We need to look at how we can improve a number of businesses here. So that's that's the thing, Patty. That's something that's it's very important to me. Like I honestly, I would like to see a lot less WalMarts, a lot less Dominions, and a lot more local businesses. And even if the wages aren't perfect, you know what? It's still local. It's still money in the economy. Still, and at the same time, people say that all the time and belly aching about China and all the rest of it. And yet, what does their weekend shopping include? Costco, Walmart. Why? price point 
right? Even yeah, though I think we kind of make up the, the issue about uh, we don't have the uh, selection and the price at a smaller owned local operation, when in fact, oftentimes, if you have a look, you can probably do something very comparable. But look, people like the cost associated with uh, shopping in the big operations because of their purchasing power. So, I mean, we all say that it'd be nice if nobody, these businesses weren't here, but yet some of the people who say that quite forcefully and publicly, you can see them out there filling up their, their tank at Costco and in the shop getting, you know, a vat of mayonnaise. Uh, appreciate the time, Ernest. I'm late for the break, but I enjoyed the chat. You too. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back. Uh, let's go where? Line number three. Alec, you're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. Thank you. Happy to take um, your call. Go right ahead. Yeah, and thanks. You have a great show, and thank you to uh, your team and yourself. It's important work you do, keeping the lines open. Um, so this morning, I wanted to talk about um, gun regulations, safety, uh, the community, and, and people that suffer from mental illness and, um, and also addictions, alcohol, and, and otherwise. Um, so a couple of years ago, I, I lost a close friend of mine, and it, it was devastating. Um, suicide. Uh, and what, what I'd, I'd like to ask a question. Uh, I mean, does the community and the government have a duty of care uh, to protect individuals that are susceptible and also uh, reduce risk in our communities when it comes to gun violence? I would think so, yes. And, and also, would you agree that with an increase in oil revenue or, um, say, good times coming down the pipes, uh, you know, Europe and, and our energy source, energy resources, uh, also comes crime and drug use and, and gun violence and, and things of that nature, would you agree? I'm not, just can you say that again for me? I'm just trying to make sure I'm on the right track here. So the increase in prosperity? Well, generally, uh, the boom-bust nature of the oil industry. Okay. Um, I, I believe statistics will support me when I say that it also comes with an increase in, in crime and, uh, and drug use and things of that nature. And, and my point today is uh, specifically, are, are there ways that we can, can protect individuals that may be susceptible to gun violence, uh, be it mental illness or addictions, drugs and alcohol addiction, um, through our, med our health system, uh, be it doctors acknowledging that there are problems there with depression and what have you, and that maybe the, the uh, law enforcement should step in and remove firearms from, from the home just for a period of time. Would you agree with, with these statements, or do you have a counter to any of this? No, I'm not trying. I'm not here to counter. Uh, you know, just a conversation is kind of my goal. The uh, Look, there's certainly... A lot of upside to duty of care, obviously, and government's role in creating policy. And I think that's what was some of the gun control legislation that was tabled yesterday in the House of Commons. You know, we can talk about the way they're approaching handguns, the purchase and transportation, all that stuff. But they're saying quite clearly, if you were involved in domestic violence, you have to turn over your firearm. Criminal harassment, increase the criminal penalties for smuggling and trafficking, red flag law that deems if you're a threat to yourself or anybody else, you have to turn over your firearm. So those are pragmatic pieces of duty of care when we talk about it. And this is a federal issue. We can try to noodle around the edges as a provincial uh, body, but this is really a national conversation. So I think the point you're making is backed by at least that facet of the legislation from yesterday. Your thoughts? Yes, well, uh, I mean, it's, it's a, with the recent news in the United States, uh, I have a son. He's 10 years old. I have concerns, not so much here in Canada, 
but um, you know, it's still a worry for me. Uh, you know, we have young people, uh, weapons getting in the hands of young people. Now, we don't have problems with automatic rifles. Uh, we do have rifles uh, for hunting and whatnot. And, and I know handguns would be more so in the city for protecting your home and your house. But, uh, but generally, I, I think the, the community uh, should be aware that, that safety regulations may have to be increased. Uh, and in terms of locking firearms down in your home, ensuring they don't get in the, the hands of people that may be susceptible to violence, um, and, and overall um, ensure that our, our schools and our children and our communities are safe. And I think this is an important topic, especially as we look to, towards uh, maybe a boom, a boom period here in the province. And uh, because we know that we will see an increase in, in uh, drug addiction and um, and crime rates as well. And, and you know what? If you've been if you've been convicted of a criminal offense, you, you shouldn't be allowed to own a gun. Um, you shouldn't be allowed to carry a weapon. Yes, I mean, certainly if you've been convicted of any violent offence. But the the boom-bust cycle is, of course, very real. And there's volatile markets, whether we talk about mining in Lab West and or the oil and gas industry. The big place where it rears its ugly head regarding addictions and potential increase in crimes and what have you is that not everyone participates in the boom. Right? Those directly impacted will have some high times coming their way. It's the people who have been left so far behind. That's what we're seeing, as far as I can tell. I mean, just look no further than there was a billionaire added every single day during the pandemic. It's remarkable. A billionaire added globally every single day during the pandemic thus far. The disparity now between the haves and the have-nots is larger than, it's ever, than it ever has been. We've got astronomical growth at the top. Their net worth has increased to the trillions. But folks who were in whether it be poor, working poor, middle class, the difference between us now and the rich, uber rich, obscenely rich and absurdly rich is bigger than it's ever been. And the folks that are being left behind, that disparity, I think, leads to issues regarding, well, of course, generalizations aren't helpful, but that disparity leads to the opioid crisis. That leads to violence in the streets, as opposed to the folks participating in the boom, seeing the positive uptick of the boom. It's the other folks who don't have that sort of massive influx of finances and security and uh, rosy futures, even though it might be precarious, it's the folks left behind that we see that are far more likely to fall prey to some of the issues that you speak about. Well, I agree. I agree um, uh, in some um, some aspects, but but I think also it's um, but I disagree when it comes to the boom bust. The boom times generate uh, an influx of uh, drugs such as cocaine, um, yeah. and other illicit drugs, and those people with addictions. You now, if I'm a laborer or I'm a rig hand or I'm uh, I'm someone that's uh, now my my income has gone up. You know, I like to have a good time, and and all of a sudden I pick up an addiction during the good times because I can afford it. Now, what happens when you have bust period? Uh, the jobs are gone. Boom, bust. We know oil goes down. This is a cycle. Uh, during the bust periods, we have these people that have picked up these addictions. Now they have no money to support them. So what do they do? They steal. They act criminally. They find ways to to uh, keep the addictions going. Yeah, well, that's where harm reduction yeah. policy should be the guiding principle, regardless if we're talking boom or bust cycles. One point that I want to pick up on, and I'm not, I don't think you were trying to make this point, but all the conversations and the pushback towards any discussion about guns, gun violence, and I know some of these things really just make their way from the states into our psyche, but, you know, people whose their starting focus is mental health. Uh, there's a, a deep flaw in that particular conversation. 
And here's why I think it. Because what the implication is, is if that you have been diagnosed with a mental illness, then you're more prone than someone who has not been to be violent with your weapon, with your firearm. When that's really doing a disservice to the conversation surrounding mental health, mental wellness, mental illness, because it's just simply not true that just because you have a mental illness, all of a sudden you may indeed become a mass murderer. That, I mean, it's, it's just, it's the same thing when, you know, we hear someone who's schizophrenic and all of a sudden we just assume that they're dangerous. When in fact, that's just not the case. So well, when people's pushback on guns is mental health, I understand that. And there's got to be a relationship between legislation and medical health professionals or me- uh, mental health professionals. But just when that's the blanket argument, that just betrays the conversation regarding mental health. Because just because you have that illness does not mean that you are a danger. Well, I, I'm glad you brought that up, Patty. And, and I'll, uh, I'll offer my two cents. Uh, sure. And I'll tell you, uh, personally, I have, uh, I'm bipolar. Okay. Uh, I have a mental illness, and um, and I'm not afraid to say it, and I think that's a good thing. But but also, um, I've experienced a crisis in my life, and and also, would I trust myself with a weapon during a crisis when I don't when uh, when I may when I may not be uh, with it, or I may have problems with reality and things like that? So um, there are issues, depression, uh, suicide. There are there are arguments. Oh, it can. Uh, There's no, uh, not diminishing that whatsoever. But the issue of public safety versus your own mental state and what you may or may not do are kind of two different things too, right? What what I'm saying is... Treat it. Treat it. Sure. But having a formal diagnosis of depression doesn't mean that you may not harm yourself with your firearm. But the implication also is when we talk public safety is that that diagnosis makes you a danger to the general public, which is just simply not true. That's the point I'm, not, I'm making. Not that people may not use a firearm to harm themselves. So I, you know, I think they're kind of two different conversations that are maybe in the same church, but certainly not in the same pew. I understand, and uh, you know, I think I think the, the most important thing here is safety to the individual. That may be susceptible, uh, be it uh, depression, um, mania, what have you, sure. and sa- safety to the community. And I think that uh, that 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 category that that I mean, safety should be number one, and should be treated uh, with respect. And we should not be neglectful of of uh, people that may be susceptible or neglectful of, of our communities when it comes to. Uh, to handling weapons, lethal weapons. And people make the argument, well, cars lethal weapon, or vehicles lethal weapon. You know, are you going to let people drive a car? And that opens up a whole new conversation. Not really, though. Again, those arguments, I think, are just grasping at straws. Someone will tell them, someone sent me this email, you know, after 9-11, we didn't ban planes. Oh, God. And, you know, someone may use a uh, vehicle as a weapon, sure. And then all of a sudden, well, if I don't have a, uh, a gun, I can kill someone with a spoon. All right. But are they really legitimate stars? starting points of conversation as opposed to just the very fringe of grasping at straws and straw men because of course we didn't ban planes after 9-11 and of course after that uh, person drove into the crowd at the parade where was it in uh, Wisconsin or something we didn't ban cars no we didn't but those occurrences instances they pale in comparison to what we see in some parts of the world regarding gun violence now any anyway i'll give you the final word uh, alec oh yeah thank you well i mean finally uh i'd just like to encourage everyone this summer to get out and uh enjoy your craft your local craft breweries and get out <laughs> and, uh, 
and get your hands in the dirt. And uh, food independence is important. So that was my final say. I just wanted to lighten things up. And uh, again, Patty, thank you for your show. It's important to hear from the community. And uh, thank you for giving me a voice today. I appreciate you making time for us. Thanks, Alec. Okay, take care. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, let's see here. I was checking down the Twitter before we get to the break and the newscast. And, of course, plenty of time left to speak with you. We're doing okay on the phone, Dave. All right. So Alec makes a lot of important points. And that's where we can have, I think, lots of real good faith discussions on some of the biggest issues of the day. So appreciate Alex's time. Just like we appreciate everyone who takes the time to call the program. If it's something you'd like to pick up on that you've heard on the show, let's do that. If you want to change the topic, you do that exactly that exact thing right after this break. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number five. Dave, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Uh, first time caller here, buddy. <laughs> Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Uh, just listening to your show this morning, listening to uh, the news every day, I think we'd all have to agree that there's no shortage of topics to keep us interested, is there? <laughs> no, sir. <laughs> yes, and I was listening to your previous uh, caller there, and certainly the topic that he was talking about was a very interesting one and one that needs to be discussed at quite a length, I'm sure. Uh, the topic, however, that I wanted to just bring up briefly this morning also refers to something a previous caller mentioned about the road, the state of the roads in St. John's. Now, I'm not from St. John's. I'm, uh, I'm out of town. I'm a bayman, but I'm a bayman who loves our capital city. And uh, I've driven over the roads in St. John's so many times, and, and it's actually aggravating to you when you're driving over this is what the uh, what the locals kind of called a scratch and patch. Yeah. I mean, the city has been carrying on this this routine for so long now. It's time for them to put a stop to this and pave the roads properly, like they should be. As you mentioned earlier, uh, it would be much better to put down good quality pavement. Only probably do half as many roads this year as what they would do normally, but do it, do the quality work that needs to be done so that it would last longer in the long run, especially so. on the main roads in the city. Well, I mean, St. John's must look like a patchwork quilt from space because oh, grind and patch is the way to go. I mean, some of the major thoroughfares, you know, like they've been, they paved Portugal Cove Road for years. Came out Road, annual event. Uh, even if, when I take Newfoundland Drive as part of my route home, it is brutal. And so yeah. I know people complain about the road. Someone sent me a video of the road down to La Cie, and it's ridiculously bad. But even here in the capital city, the roads are atrocious. They are. And, I mean, people's vehicles are getting... My wife's car, we've had to do $2,000 worth of repairs on the car. Now, it's not only, obviously, in the city that we're driving over, of course. The yeah. roads in general around the province are terrible. But, like, uh, you know, the capital city of all places needs to be... It needs to be the higher standard that everybody else should say, oh, look at our capital. We are, we're proud of our capital. People are coming here. We've had tourists come here and complain about roads. Oh, yeah. Beautiful place, beautiful city, but the, the roads are terrible. Now, I know St. John's is doing a lot of work on, on downtown area, and it's really looking good. Uh, one other thing that uh, I'll make one other comment before I go. Uh, talking about the beautiful, the, the beautiful city itself now, there's an awful lot of graffiti on some of the, some of the especially in the downtown area. It's, it's very, it's terrible. Uh, you drive along some of the streets and you're looking at uh, downtown and you got beautiful, beautiful streets down there with beautiful old buildings that makes the city of St. John's unique in not only Canada, but probably North America. 
And then you see, like, oh, my God, there's a, there's a wall there with all this graffiti marked up on the side of it. it, ter- it it's terrible. Now, I'm not foolish enough to believe that the city is going to be able to catch everybody and punish all of these people who are doing this, but is there some kind of a progressive idea that we can come up with to get these people who are involved in this type of activity to stop it or channel their their talents, if you want to call it, because some some of these people do have a talent. Absolutely. Can, can we channel that somehow or another? Like, probably create a wall where they can where they can paint murals or something, and uh, you know, rather than defacing all the beautiful old buildings downtown? I think you're onto something there. You know, there's a difference between street art and graffiti, just tagging a, a building or a wall for the sake of. And they do it in other places, is they have uh, parts of the city that are set aside for street art. And then there's much heavier penalties for if and when you're caught just being your straight-up nuisance graffiti artist. So, yeah, yeah, I think that's part of the solution for sure. One place where I've seen it in action is when they create skate parks. They become the home of the the graffiti artists and or the street artists. So those things make sense to me. And you mentioned the beautiful nature of some of the buildings and stuff in St. John's. You know, we've got to wrap our mind around that because we've lost a lot of historical buildings because they've fallen into disrepair. And there's an associated high cost with maintaining a property in the historical districts. But if we don't watch it before long, what was we pretend is the oldest city in North America, before long, we become a vinyl siding jungle and we're no longer unique in any form or fashion. So we've got to keep an eye to that. I agree. You are absolutely correct, and uh, you, you, you touched a chord for me there when you mentioned the historical, because I'm a real history lover, and Saint, that's one of the things that makes St. John's so unique. It's history, it's culture, uh, it's people, and it's geography. I mean, there's not very many cities around around our country that you'll see the same thing that you'll see in downtown St. John's. And for that, we should be proud. Some places have done a great job of it. You know, the so-called downtown core grand back needs to be protected. If you go into Bonavista and the work they've done to preserve the heritage look and feel of the community, it's brilliant. It's absolutely outstanding. Go to Port Union. Brilliant stuff that they've done there. Monumental effort to keep it the way it is. But we don't give a lot of attention to it. Some people are hyper-focused on it in the city of St. John's. The preservation of these buildings, whether it be residences all the way to some of the bigger pieces of infrastructure, the basilicas of the world and the like. Right. But it just makes, it's in our collective best interest if we keep our eye on that prize. It's of no value at the 11th hour to protest keeping the wrecking ball away from one piece of historical facility, uh, one historical site or a heritage building or another because the 11th hour generally nothing gets done. So making it manageable to maintain your property in a historical designated part of the city, maybe some support programs before things fall into disrepair, and nobody but nobody has the money to bring it back to its past glory. This is all in our best interest to do better on that front. It shouldn't just be a niche focus of a handful of people that are willing to protest before they bring down one of these homes, whether it be on Winter Place or otherwise, which has happened, and too far too often. Absolutely. I agree with you 100%. And one final comment before I go, I want to end on the positive note, I suppose. Sure. The news this morning, you're talking about uh, the uh, the economic upturn that's looking that we're looking forward to uh, in in the province, especially in the St. John's area. They're talking about uh, an increase in the number of housing units. Uh, the the uh, uh, the economic output altogether is supposed to increase by about 1.6 or 2.6% or something. Yeah. Well, that's finally a bit of good news. <laughs> yeah, there's growth issues. You know, housing has a bunch of different approaches. There was a big federal-provincial announcement regarding affordable housing. Home starts are down. Real estate values are up. Uh, you know, it's hard to know where people focus on how to measure growth numbers, but 
real estate for one, man, it's almost even hard to understand. And when you see and hear of oil project approvals, it brings upon additional economic generation, but some of that is just based in hope (laughs) as opposed (laughs) to what's actually happening. I've always been fascinated by that, but it happens every single time. Dave, good to have you on the show. Thank you very much. Take good care of yourself. Have a good morning. You too. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back. All right. Today, I believe, is No Tobacco Day. Joining us on line number one is Dr. Kathy Balsam. She's one of the clinical pharmacists at the uh, Medication Therapy Clinic. Am I getting that right this morning, Dave? I used to be able to get that right off the tip of my tongue. Medica- uh, Medication Therapy Services Clinic. And Dr. Leslie Phillips is the program lead for Quit Smoking and Vaping Program at the clinic. They both join us on line number one. Good morning, ladies. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning. Welcome to the show. Happy World No Tobacco Day. And I have to say, uh, Kathy's a frequent flyer on your show, Patty, but I'm a first-time caller. <laughs> well, welcome back to Kathy, and welcome to the first-time caller, Dr. Phillips. Uh, no Tobacco Day. We know that there's been all kinds of moves, whether it be the change in packaging, the additional taxation, the syntax on tobacco and vaping products. Where do we start? Actually, let me tell you where we're going to start. The tobacco industry has it figured out. They know exactly what they were doing when they uh, devised the size of the cigarette, understanding the nicotine receptors in the brain and the need for them to be fed on a fairly regular intervals, it's hard to combat. So when people refer to it as a habit, a societal habit, as opposed to a really serious addiction, we kind of let people get away with it because it's an illness, not a habit. You're absolutely right, Patty. It is a, a, a nicotine addiction, and nicotine is the most addictive substance in society today. And the cigarette and now the vape, which, by the way, are also owned by Big Tobacco, are engineering marvels. They are designed, as you said, to maximize your addiction. Yeah, I get it. Just expand on the not only the addictive property of nicotine, but how the industry figured out how to get our brains to crave it on the intervals where we crave it. Because there is a reason why they, they stick the number of smokes in a package that they do. Talk us through the nicotine receptors in the brain. Yeah, sure. So there's a pathway in the brain called the dopamine reward pathway, and that's where all the substances of, of that we get addicted to act. It's also uh, food hits that pathway. And so when something pleasurable happens, it causes a release of dopamine in that pathway, which is a feel-good chemical. So in that pathway, uh, there are receptors, uh, because the brain has its own sort of version of nicotine and its own version of cannabis and its own version of of opiates. So there's a nicotine uh, receptor in that pathway. And so when you smoke a cigarette, it is the second fastest way other than intravenous injection to get that nicotine to the brain. So within seven to 10 seconds of that puff, that nicotine comes into that pathway and it slams that receptor. And it causes, instead of a small amount of dopamine, because it's slamming the receptor, it's getting in there so quickly, it causes this big, huge blast, like a spotlight release of dopamine. And it feels so good, it's just so reinforcing. Now that receptor, only is unlocked, if you will, for about five minutes at a time every 45 minutes. So the tobacco company figures, well, I want to make the length of the cigarette just right so I can make sure that the whole five minutes at that receptor, that the door is open, I can get in there. And so if the cigarette were shorter, uh, it wouldn't maximize the availability of that receptor. And if the cigarette were longer, it would kind of just be a waste because in five minutes the receptor kind of shuts down and goes to sleep. 
And then 45 minutes later, it wakes up again and it's ready to receive nicotine again. At least that's the way it is in most people's brains. And so the tobacco company figured, well, hmm, every 45 minutes, and most people are probably awake, what, 16 to 18 hours a day? So that would be 20 to 25 cigarettes. So it's not a coincidence that they put 20 to 25 cigarettes in the pack. And they show their flexibility by creating the king-size cigarette, too, even though I shouldn't make jokes about this. Uh, yeah. Dr. Balsam, let's bring you in on this. So we know that the uh, quitting smoking or the cessation programs are important. What's your role in the clinic regarding tobacco and or vapes? Absolutely. So uh, Dr. Phillips, my coworker here, has developed an amazing program um, that does help people quit. So we meet with people, we do a full kind of full hour assessment and come up with a quit plan. Because we know that if you go out and try to quit on your own, your chances of success are pretty slim. Some people can do it, but your chances of quitting cold turkey are, you know, 5% of being, you know, successful after a year with a cold turkey attempt. But we know if we combine, you know, a quit medication, whether that be something like Nicorette, nicotine replacement, or, you know, the prescription quit smoking medications, we combine those with a good plan and some cognitive behavioral therapy or a counselor, like that's the service that we provide. We know that we can, you know, double your chances of a successful quit or even, you know, more than that, triple even. Um, so we are here to help people walk through that process, come up with a plan, and then we follow them throughout the ups and downs of the quitting pro uh, quitting process. I'll let both of you speak to this one. So, and I know this isn't inside the world of pharmaceutical treatments or what have you, but smokers are very much treated like lepers in some corners. Now, there's been some positive moves made where you can't smoke in public buildings and the like with, you know, secondhand smoke is obviously a well understood problem. But how do we have the conversation where the smoker doesn't feel like they're treated like a second-class citizen or a leper? Because that brings upon all sorts of resistance to getting help or treatment from your clinic. It brings upon a societal divide, which I think is less than helpful. So just speak to that philosophical piece of it, because I think that plays a role in wanting to quit and how you go about quitting. Uh, yeah, absolutely, and it's amazing the number of smokers who come in and say that's part of the reason why they're quitting is because they're ashamed. A lot of them cover up, don't tell, don't even tell people uh, that they're smoking. I have one person who used to have a change of clothes, go out in their shed, put on their smoking clothes, you know, and then uh, take it back off, and they came in so no, no one would know they were smoking. So it is a big thing, uh, Patty, and it's time that we recognize that smoking is an addiction. It's an illness. It's an addiction to nicotine. It's not a bad habit, and we have to stop blaming the smoker and start blaming the cigarette. And honestly, it's shows like yours and the media that I think are so vital in helping us spread this word. We really need to support smokers, Patty. We have a population where we, as a province, we, have, we lead the country in deaths due to lung cancer, in deaths due to heart disease, and I think we probably have the highest or one of the highest rates of COPD. We also have, provincially, the highest rate of smoking. And what's the number one preventable cause of those three illnesses? Smoking is not a coincidence. We have to help those people out there who are current smokers quit, and they need our support. Not our blame. Are some of the non-traditional 
approaches helpful at all? For instance, like people talk about hypnosis. It worked for one of my pals. Should people even consider those types of things, or is that too kooky to be part of this conversation? Well, uh, I think uh, one of my smokers said it to me pretty good the other day. Um, a quit journey is like a snowflake. No two are the same. So, you know, not to bash different ways of quitting. There are people out there who will quit with laser therapy or acupuncture or hypnosis. But if I'm being honest, there's while people do quit that way and they also can quit cold turkey, there is no really good scientific evidence to support those ways as being successful. So what has the most scientific evidence, so well-designed scientific studies, is this combination of using a quit medication along with behavioral strategies. And what they are really is teaching people practical skills about how to identify and manage their triggers and then their cravings when they're exposed to those triggers when they quit. Let's and talk that's about, what works the best. Fair ball. Let's talk about vaping for a minute. You can drive by a junior high or high school and the puffs of smoke, I guess, vape is pretty obvious so there's concepts that you know we would take away the the flavored variety but it's so widely available online versus you know regulated supply so where do we go with vaping let me ask i guess the starting question is is vaping actually a successful way to quit or is it a gateway to smoking or is it both no no no, it's both. Uh, so another great question, Patty. And some people do um, quit with vaping, but you know, vaping's been around since about, about 2010, maybe even earlier. And yet, the overall prevalence of smoking in this country has not really declined. So how effective is it really? So again, some people will quit uh, using a vape, uh, but most people become what we call dual users, where they vape and they smoke which is more harmful than, than either alone. So, and vaping is not an approved uh, way to quit smoking, at least in this country. It may be a form of harm reduction. So I have a few smokers who I absolutely, they just can't give it up, where I may be able to switch them over to vaping. If you can switch completely, it's probably a form of harm reduction in the sense that it's not safe. I don't want to let anybody think it's safe. It's probably safer than smoking, but it's not safe. If you can switch completely, which most people can't, it may be a form of harm reduction in those people. But at what cost? Because I think for every smoker that quits using a vape, 80 youth who vaped will pick up a cigarette. So we're raising this whole new generation, Patty, of nicotine addicts. And we really need to be concerned about that. And you know what? They have no idea how much nicotine are in those vapes because the vapes now have a nicotine salt, which is much more palatable, is an easier hit on the throat. You're able to get way more nicotine. And I can tell you the vapors that I get in here are always shocked to find out how much nicotine they're vaping. And so uh, the last two I had, uh, I had a lady who was vaping uh, 108 milligrams of nicotine a day. That's 108 cigarettes. And I had a gentleman vaping 162 milligrams. That's 162 cigarettes worth of nicotine a day. And they were shocked because if you look at the, you know, the, the label on their vaping liquid, it says like, you know, 2% or 5% or 1.5%. Jeez, that doesn't sound like so much. But they're hitting on it all day, you know. They're grazing on it all day, and they're just racking up 
the nicotine addiction and it makes it really difficult to quit. Yeah, so, you know, the vaping issue, you don't even really know long-term implications health-wise of vaping versus what is the well-understood implication of tobacco consumption or uh, inhalation. Kathy, last one for you. So, I also know someone, a family friend of ours, and their young teen was caught with the vape. They very quickly went to, well, at least he's vaping and he's not smoking. What do you say to that family? Yeah, and I think Leslie puts it really well when she says, you know, it's not safe, but it may be safer than smoking. So if we're comparing it to a cigarette, we could say, well, I mean, I guess it is at least it's not smoking, but it's still quite, quite dangerous, right? And I think the biggest issue, like Leslie said, is that people aren't aware of the nicotine. So if you do develop a nicotine addiction, because a lot of these vapes are containing nicotine, which is one of the most addictive substances on the planet, if you are developing a nicotine addiction, there's nothing to say that you won't turn to cigarettes in the end. I really appreciate you both uh, coming on the show. If people want to expand or to explore cessation products, whether it be in, in consultation with you, girl, you ladies, what do they need to do? Yeah, sure. So you can certainly give us a call. Our phone number is 864-2274. And you can find us online as well at www.mtsclinic.ca. We're also on Facebook at MTS Clinic. Nice to have you both on. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Patty. Here you go. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Dr. Leslie Phillips is the program lead for Quit Smoking and Vaping Program with Dr. Kathy Balsam from the NTS Clinic at Memorial University School of Pharmacy. Whew. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the PC member of the House of Assembly, elected in and serving the folks of Topsail Paradise. That's Paul Din. Good morning, Paul. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. Uh, appreciate you taking my call. No problem. Uh, always uh, good calling because your show offers a sounding board to the public and also a springboard for, for getting information out on, on items. And uh, what I want to call in about today is uh, we're in the last day of uh, Mental Health Month. And uh, I uh, I get a lot of calls and that on this, and most people out there, and I know you've gotten calls. Uh, and I just don't want to see you fade into the sunset. So I, I just want to to call and just speak on mental health, um, and give some background, uh, some uh, information I've called in before on. Uh, in our province, we deal with a hundred thousand, approximately a hundred thousand or more, are dealing with mental health challenges or illnesses. Seventy uh, percent of the illness uh, starts or begins in childhood or adolescence. Uh, 40% seek help and, and approximately 20% receive proper help. And of course this week, and you just had a caller on actually, uh, who spoke to uh, an individual who committed suicide. And we had the uh, the sad story a couple of weeks back now on uh, another young woman who committed suicide. And unfortunately, uh, Many of us, myself included, we all know of someone or know someone who has uh, committed suicide as a result of uh, uh, mental health challenges. Challenges, and uh, you know, it's unfortunate we we come to that point. So, so it's even more important that we continue to keep the dialogue open on mental health and have have the discussions that uh, need to happen and uh, identify and recognize uh, that there are still gaps in the system and that we we need to start uh, plugging those gaps 
and providing services and programs that uh, help eliminate people coming to that ultimate tragic end of uh, taking their own life. It's it's you know and it's unfortunate, but the young young uh, mother Ashley Malloy you know puts a face to to this. Uh, 27 years old, uh, mother of two young kids, and. Uh, her parents reached out to us and, and asked us to raise the issue and raise in the House Assembly, which I did. And uh, they were, you know, uh, visibly upset, no doubt about it. But they don't want to give up the fight for, for Ashley and those others who have who are out there fighting and have no one to fight for them. Um, so, you know, I, I, I want to call in and just bring that to the forefront again uh, on mental health. Uh, it's a major issue. Issue. It's a major issue just by the numbers I just read out. I suspect they're even higher than that. Um, you know, there are supports out there. We, we know that. We know that there's short-term supports, and then we know there's some more extensive supports, but there are still gaps. Uh, Christy Allen, who I, I know you're familiar with, has called your show on a number of times, uh, who is a great advocate for for pushing for better mental health uh, supports. Uh, in fact, I believe she's at, this is week 79, where she she's uh, Monday Monday mornings out in front of the Federation building. Uh, but we need to start listening. You know, I go back to the Mental Health Week uh, uh, motto when they came out there early part of the month. This is empathy. Before you weigh in, tune in. And the key word is empathy. We re- I, I don't know if there's anyone out there who does not have someone dealing with a mental health issue. And we really have to start listening and collectively and coming up with solutions. Now, there was a piece of work done uh, towards recovery uh, a number of years back, which was, was, was a, a good piece of work. A lot of action items. Some are very low-hanging fr- fruit, I'll call them, but there still needs to be work to, work to be done here. If people are still taking their lives, it's, it needs attention. And uh, Dr. Janine Hubbard's been on your show, and we've spoken with her, and you need to have, uh, you know, there's a lack of psychiatrists, lack of psychologists. Uh, we, we really need to start addressing this issue because it's not getting better. It's going to get worse. And especially when you talk about 70% of these issues begin in childhood and adolescence. Uh, we we got to be doing more to, to uh, help come up with a long-term continuity of care process that takes people from that first initial contact to calling a mental health crisis line uh, to preventing them from going into some uh, extensive care mental health facility. There's, there's work that needs to be done there. And I think, you know, on the day, last day of Mental Health Month, I just want to call in and reach out and reemphasize that because mental health is every day, every hour, every minute. And, uh, you know, until we really start to address that, we, we are, we are going to be in a sad state of affairs. Uh, no argument, and just a couple of things. And this is not to nitpick, but no. it's you know, death by suicide. We also have to be careful, just like when people are talking about gun control and mental health, and you know, my God, if you have a mental illness, then you're so called much more dangerous than anybody else. Same thing inside the world of 
death by suicide. Uh, a diagnosis doesn't mean that that's the eventual outcome for you. I just want to make that point because it, yeah. sometimes we, you know, we just have to be careful because the conversations are emotional. They're already politically tricky. And, you know, like Christine, her work for long-term mental health care versus some of the stopgap measures that have been put in place, whether it be like I put people on a wellness together or wellness, yeah, wellness together and or the Jacob Pottister Memorial Foundation. All these things are helpful. But yeah. government needs to up its game. If the numbers are one in five Canadians, then that number's growing. We see the numbers growing in the province of schools. So that leads us to have a clear understanding of that one in five is going to be one in four before we know it. So we have to prepare for it versus chase our tail after the fact when more and more people are needing these types of services. Uh, this is a very specific question, yeah. and I hope you have the answer. Is So when they put the mental health crisis line into 811, which there's upsides to it, you know, as opposed to scramble for a number, knowing that 811 is the go-to, as opposed to coming up with the, the 729 number, whatever it is that eludes me at this moment, yeah. that can be very helpful. But someone has asked me this specific question. If I phone and they ask me for information like my MCP number or where I am and my gender and all those types of things, as opposed to simply dealing with the mental health crisis, is that information being requested on the mental health crisis portion of 811? So, so uh, I agree with you on 811, you know, in terms of a number that's uh, very uh, easy to remember. And you'll get a mental health professional very quickly. You're prioritized. Well, well, here's the issue, because uh, I've gotten calls since uh, I've asked those questions in the House, which is a number of weeks ago. Uh, I'll just give an example. And, and like I said, the concept is great, but it has to work. Uh, I had an individual call me there, uh, well, probably 10, 12 days ago now, who called 811. Uh, she was met with a recording uh, in French and English that, uh, you know, told her, you know, for quality control where this may be recorded and so on. And then went to what she called elevator music for, as she timed it, she said it was about three minutes and 38 seconds, which is, which is uh, an eternity. And then, then a, uh, I think she identified a, a health care navigator came on the line. So it, there's still bugs to be worked out in that system. Because if if we if it was a key punch um, process as we were, were told it would be, that, that's great. If you phone eight one one and it comes up, if you have a mental health crisis, press one. That's great. But what I'm hearing right now, it's it's not, it's not there yet. So uh, you know, hopefully it will be, and uh, hopefully it will work. Uh, but I mean, if it's mental health crisis line and you're calling, you should be able to get to to someone immediately that can speak to your your situation. And I'm not quite sure if it's there yet, but uh, it's certainly the concept is something that we need to go to because when you're dealing with a mental health issue and you're curled up in the corner, a dark corner of a room in the fetal position and don't know what to do, uh, you know, it's going to be hard just to push, push 811, let alone wait you know, for some to answer, but I mean, it's it's it is a step in the right direction, uh, provided the concept is is working. Yeah, there's of course, it's not the end of the road. Yeah, but it is. I think it can be helpful because there's lots of upside to yep. it. It's just got to be uh, your access and the prioritizing of someone in a mental health crisis has to be at the very top of the chart, and then that relay of personal information is unnecessary when we're talking about a mental health crisis, unless it gets to the point where someone thinks that. You know, you might need intervention from a social worker or some immediate intervention or someone knocking on your door, which is a different kettle of fish. And I know you know that. I'm just saying. It oh, oh right. no, no. And and look, it's it's you've mentioned it earlier. Uh, there's you know the the end is not 
not you know for for most people you you have to realize and we have to get the message out there that there are resources there are supports now when we are when we you know lobby and advocate for those uh, continuity of care and long term supports yes that's needed but individuals need to know there's reach out make the call either reach out to a person you know who's dealing with a mental health issue or reach out to someone close to you you reach out the resources there people want to help and continue to bring your stories forward and continue to work on that and uh, you know there are numbers out there to call and uh, this is becoming you know like i, I said previously uh, you know we're coming out of the covid pandemic we're going to have a mental health pandemic as a result oh. and, and you see the numbers going up and the numbers increasing and it, and it's just so sad. Uh, it's, it's so sad when you see young, vibrant individuals struggling, struggling day after day and looking for that proper mix of either prescriptions and, and supports. And, uh, you know, it, it's just a feeling of hopelessness. But I, I want to say it's not hopeless. It's, there's many, many supports out there. Make the call. Call whoever you can. And we will we'll do what we help. I'll continue to push to, to try and come up with those supports in between, you know, the pendulum. Uh, I'll continue to do that, and I'm sure government will. We keep knocking on the door. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, make the call. Reach out. It's, uh, you know, uh, life is precious, and uh, it's worth living, and we need to, uh, to do the best we can to address those individuals out there who are struggling. Appreciate the time this morning, Paul. Thank you. I just leave one more number. I just leave this. I mean, there is a mental health crisis line, so I'll leave the numbers for anyone who's listening. Uh, I mean, there's many supports out there, but there is a 24-hour mental health crisis line, uh, 737-4668, or toll-free 1-888-737-4668. So everyone, reach out. And have a great day. There's always supports there. Thank you, Paul. All the best. Take care. Bye-bye. As Paul Denny's a PC member for Topsail Paradise, final break of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's get an update on the ongoing saga regarding uh, crab licenses with the owner of Bay Roberts Seafood. That's Jason Russell on three. Jason, you're on the air. Hey, how you doing, Patty? Grand today. Thank you. Good, good. Um, just wanted to give you, uh, give you an update now on our uh, <coughs> issue we're having with uh, Minister Bragg. Um, yesterday we had a meeting with uh, Bragg, uh, went in, sat down. He was trying to give us all of his reasoning as to why he rejected our recommendations. And every time he would open his mouth, uh, I would just shoot him down and uh, counter everything he had to say. And all he could keep saying back to me was, uh, you're making good points, you're making good points, but I'm, you know, I'm sticking to my guns here, I made a decision. So then I said, all right, you're, you're, uh, you're right on this fix about plant workers and hours and, and uh, elig- EI eligibility. So how about, what a, Bragg, the last few years, um, it, all these plant workers you are concerned about, they all, in, they all got their hours, they got their times, the plants got through it, the pro, everything got processed, there was no big issues, everybody got their weeks. I said, this year now, we have 46 million pounds more crab in the, to be processed. What's your what's your reasoning behind that? Why 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 is why are you still concerned about these workers when we have all this excess uh, supply? He said, Jason. He said, yeah. He said uh, last year he said the plants got in, had to get into secondary more secondary processing. He said so they can give their workers their uh, insurable earnings. And I stopped, and I could I couldn't believe that the minister, our minister of fisheries, said that. 
Patty, are you aware, are your listeners aware that our provincial government is pumping millions and millions of dollars and resources into the fishery to promote secondary processing? We have a minister here one day, one day he's, he's signing, uh, he's signing uh, recommendations and subsidies to give uh, plants money to uh, promote the secondary processing. And the very next day, he talks about secondary processing as if it were some backup plan uh, to give employees their stamps uh, if they can't get it all in primary processing. That's what he had, basically what he admitted to. And I'm going to go further than that. I'm going to go, well, I have a mandate letter here that the premier um, wrote to um, the minister when he took uh, his office on April the 15th, 2021. The premier said to Minister Bragg, um, key to our economic renewal is supporting efforts to further develop our secondary processing capabilities. I ask that you work with industry to identify opportunities for secondary or further processing of our existing exports. So our premier wants our minister to promote secondary processing, but we have a minister, all he wants to do is use secondary processing as a backup plan for someone to get their stamps, and then that's it. The fishery's over with for another year. Yeah, I mean, it might be a way that the operators approach attracting locals to work in the plant with some consideration for what their year-round earnings look like. Not so sure it makes any sense regarding public government policy. Right. Well, if, if government is going to throw money uh, at something to, prom- to promote it so they can uh, add value to uh, our exports, uh, but then they're not going to really they're, – they're just going to look at it as a, as, a, as a second option. And not even a second option, just an option to get your stamps and that's it. Other than that, uh, we don't want to create really uh, – Minister Bragg is not uh, interested in creating uh, all-year-round employment and secondary process, and he just wants to make sure that people get their, uh, their stamps and then their uh, – and then that's it. That's all he considers. Uh, that's that's his priority for secondary processing. I appreciate the update, as confounding as it is, Jason. Yes, thank you very much. And I'm 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 you know why I'm keeping up this fight. Uh, there's a lot of politicians that I've been talking to the last few days, and within his uh, within the Liberal Party, and they are all shaking their heads as well. Everybody, nobody can understand what he is doing, how he's backed in the corner. And a man with real big shoulders right now would admit that he made a mistake and rectify this, but he's not doing it. And I think the Premier needs to address this right away. Appreciate the time. You, Stay in Thank touch. You. Okay. That's Jason Russell. He's the owner of Bay Roberts Seafood. Okay. Last word of the morning goes to line number two, Tina Davies, with the Richard Legacy Foundation. Good morning, Tina. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. I just wanted to address the uh, la- the caller before last, uh, Paul, that called in and spoke about uh, mental health. And I just wanted to give him a little bit of hope <laughs> because – uh, do you, you remember when we uh, the bill was passed for the all-party committee to travel this province and speak with everybody, and it came back and they had this list of actions, and then uh, from that point, and that was, what, 2016, 2015, we have been working behind the scenes. We've been working meeting, um, working on this, and it's actually going to be the launch tomorrow. Uh, it's going to be announced and we've come up with, uh, it's the Life Promotion and Suicide Prevention Plan. We call it our Path of Resilience. Um, I don't know, I may be giving away the, uh, some secrets here before the press conference tomorrow. But anyway, um, 
and I want to thank Paul for calling in because the more people that call in, the more people hear people speaking about that because a lot of people listen to your show. And um, we we need that. We need people to be talking about it. We we can't stop talking about it. We have to continue to talk about it and just keep moving forward. And, and I really am... Uh, positive about the action plans that we've come up with that will be announced tomorrow and I hope everybody else is um, and just so you know I, I know uh, I, there will always be suicides we're working hard to make that not happen we um, at one point I wanted to make not everybody who has suicidal thoughts needs a psychiatrist most of the time, they need somebody to listen to them. That's it. That's all it is. Um, somebody to, to take some time and to hear their story. And, and, and once they talk about it, they, they feel better and then perhaps can figure out some solutions as to whether you go to the doctor, get medication, or whether you, you know, just read a really good self-help book or just talk talk to your your friends about it. It, it everybody's different right everyone's different but, but nine times out of ten we don't need psychiatrists if you have a suicidal thought you need some training sure and you know the more we talk about it the easier it becomes to talk about i mean and that's exactly. the goal that i'm you know trying to set my sights on here on the program it's not to needle into people's personal business but i think there's people out there even if it was just to talk about it openly with someone who you don't know just a voice on the other end of the line like this program and or you know wellness together what have you it yeah. becomes easier to have the next conversation the more we all hear from people telling their personal stories the better our ability is to hear from our friends and their personal stories and all of this collectively should hopefully make a positive difference. Uh, Tina, simply because of the time on the clock, we're out of time. Yes. You've had the last word, but I wish we had more time this morning, and you're always welcome to join us on the show. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, the more we talk about it, the more we remove that stigma, Patty, and the easier we make it for people to reach out and get that help. For sure. But, yeah, listen tomorrow for the launch. Uh, um, it's going to be great. I absolutely will, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Yes, anytime. Okay, take care. Thanks, Tina. You too. Bye-bye. All right, we are indeed out of time, but we will pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.